Well, since you're all ready, we still have a minute or two, but let's go ahead and get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we, who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the same spirit be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. Now, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, and I see a few new faces out there, we have been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but we're going to do something a little different today. Uh, We are getting close, of course, to the story of the Lord's birth, to the celebration of Christmas, and um, uh, just so happens this year that Christmas happens to fall on Sunday. And then the following week is New Year's in the life of the church that's called the the Feast of the Holy Name, or it used to be the Circumcision. But what it means is that we are not going to be having the Rector's Forum next Sunday or the following Sunday. We will have church, but we won't have the Rector's Forum. So rather than start a new section in the Sermon on the Mount today and then simply have to go back because in three weeks I'll forget where I was and review the whole thing, I decided today we would just take a closer look at a story that is very familiar to us all, but one that has profound importance for our lives. Uh, The old saying is that familiarity breeds what? Contempt. I think when it comes to the story of the Lord's birth, it's probably not that bad. It's not a case where familiarity necessarily breeds contempt, but I think that from time to time, familiarity can breed apathy. We've heard the story so many times in so many different ways that to some people it has really lost its power. It has lost its significance. And not just in a a big way, but in terms of our everyday lives. In in terms of seeing how much God really does love us. And to what great lengths God was willing to go in order to save us. So today we're just going to take a closer look at the story of the Lord's birth. And we're going to be all over the Bible today, so if you have your Bibles, get them ready. Uh, If you're reading on your uh, electronic device, well, get ready for that as well. But we're going to start today at Luke chapter 2. Again, a very familiar version of the story of the Lord's birth. You'll recall that there are only two Gospels that actually recount Jesus' birth, uh, and that is Matthew and Luke. And we're going to spend some time on both of those Gospels. Mark does not begin with the Lord's nativity. Uh, Mark begins the story of Jesus with the Lord's baptism in the Jordan River, because I think as far as Mark is concerned, that's really where the rubber hits the road. And most of the gospel, with the exception of one story about Jesus in the temple when he was about 12 years old, for the most part, where there is silence on those first 30 years of Jesus' life. So we have the story of his birth, and then really you don't have much until you get to the baptism uh, in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. So that's how Mark's gospel begins. We're going to see that John's gospel begins much earlier than that, and that's going to have great significance for what we're going to say today. But for us, we're going to start with Luke chapter 2, a familiar story beginning at verse 1. And in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Uh, This sort of registration was not uncommon. Uh, The Romans ruled over a vast empire. And of course, you have to remember the world was uh, much bigger in those days than it is today. We live in a global world. 
Uh, we can be in Egypt by plane in the same amount of time that it takes us basically to drive from South Carolina to New England. And so we can be around the world rather quickly. That was not the case in the first century or in the ancient world. Uh, the world was a very big place. Most people never traveled more than about 100 miles from the place where they were born. And so the Romans were reigning over this vast empire, and they needed to know exactly how many people were under their jurisdiction. Uh, Queen Victoria once asked Benjamin Disraeli, who was her prime minister, how many people do I actually reign over? <laughs> because this was the height of the Victorian era. And Disraeli famously replied, Madam, the sun never sets on your empire. And that was absolutely true. Uh, no matter where the sun was shining at that point of the day, it was shining on some portion of the British Empire. Well, that's the way it was for the Romans. And so these registrations, they're sometimes referred to as taxations, registrations really a better word, these registrations were common uh, leading up to the point of the Lord's birth. This was not the first one even, um, but this was one of the, the first one during the time of Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria, but it was not the first registration. At any rate, all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. This was very important. Uh, Jews of the first century were very much attached to their traditions. They were very much attached to family and to heritage. And so this was one of the ways that the Romans maintained peace. They would oftentimes allow them to keep their own rulers as long as those rulers served the needs of the Roman Empire. And when it came to this sort of registration, they allowed them to go up to their own hometowns. And so we're told that Joseph had to go to the city of David, which is Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. That means he could trace his heritage back to the great king in Israel's history. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. The old King James said they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now this is how we think the story begins. We think the story of Jesus begins right here in Bethlehem, with the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. But what I want you to notice is that the story of God's great rescue mission, and that's basically what the story of Jesus is. The story of Jesus Christ is a rescue mission. God is coming into this world to save us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in Him, what? Might not perish, but have everlasting life. So the story of Jesus is a rescue mission. But what I want you to understand, it is a well-planned, well-executed rescue mission. It's so well-planned, it was put in motion before there was any need for us to actually be saved. 
So we tend to think the story begins here with Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. But actually, the story of our rescue, the story of our salvation begins much earlier than that. So keep your finger there in the New Testament. You're going to need all of them today. And we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. So right back to the very beginning of the Bible. And of course, you know that Genesis chapter 3 tells the story of the fall of man. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in this idyllic setting, and He made them regents over creation. He gave them responsibility for extending the blessings of Eden to the whole of the created order. It was a great honor. But we're told that Adam and Eve were not satisfied with being number two. They wanted to be number one. And that's the real sin of Eden. We tend to think that the real sin of Eden, of course, is that they ate of a particular tree. But the Scripture is very clear. They ate of that particular tree so that they might what? Be like God. Isn't that what the serpent said? Ah, but if you eat of the tree, you will be like God. And we've said before that this is the root of all sin. When all is said and done, this is the root of all sin in all of life. It's the desire to be like God. Because to be like God means you are the master of your own fate, you are the captain of your own destiny, and you are answerable to no one. And we've seen that this fleshes itself out in so many different ways, big and small, in our lives. I think I confessed to you um, some time back that I was um, taking my boys back to college and... uh, I got a speeding ticket on I-81 in Virginia, in Rockbridge County, Virginia. And uh, I had to get a lawyer because I guess in Virginia, when you hit 80, that's considered not just speeding, but reckless driving by speed. And uh, that's a lot of points on your license and so forth. And boy, was I frustrated. I, I saw that blue light. I was so mad. And who's I mad at? Well, I was primarily mad at the sheriff's deputy that pulled me over. (laughs) Of course, I had no reason to be. I I knew I had broken the law. I knew that I have, from time to time, a lead foot. Confession is just good for the soul. So there it is. And I was there, and I was caught. And I got the ticket. About 25 miles up the road, I'm going along, creeping at this point, at about 65, and some guy goes by me at 90. And I turned and I said, where's a cop when you need one? <laughs> and you know how that is, you see? See, it was okay for me to speed, but not okay for him to speed. And this is the way sin works, you see, in our lives. I've got my own agenda. I've got my own plan. And so it's okay for me to do these things, but it's not okay for anybody else to do it. And that's the way it was for Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God, and so they ate of that tree. Now, we have already been told by God that if they ate of the tree, the consequence for that sin would be what? It would be death. And so God confronts them. And you know the story. God confronts Adam. He comes walking in the cool of the day, and God calls out to the man, and he says, where are you? And Adam says, we hid because we recognized we were naked. And the Lord says, who told you or you were naked? That is exposed. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam's response is, the woman thou gavest me. 
she told me to eat. And the Lord turns to the woman and he says, what is it that you have done? And she says, the serpent. And then the Lord turns to the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is referred to by theologians as the proto Evangelion. That is the first preaching of the good news, the first preaching of the gospel. When the angel said, we bring you glad tidings of great joy which shall be to all people, the word that is translated there as glad tidings is the word gospel, good news. Well, the first time that the good news that a Savior would come and crush the power of the devil is preached right here at the time of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. God says, okay, things have been messed up, but I am not going to let man thwart my plans or my purposes in history. And therefore, the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. Well, who's the seed of the woman? Well, ultimately, that's going to be Jesus Christ. So we tend to think the story begins where? In Luke chapter 2, with the birth of Jesus. But actually, if you go back, it starts much earlier than that. You might say it begins in the Garden of Eden. But actually, what I want to suggest to you, that it begins even earlier than that. You see, when you read through Genesis chapter 3, you almost get the impression that God had to come up with plan B. Plan A was Adam and Eve in the Garden being His regents, extending the blessings of Eden to the whole of the created order, and then they did what? They failed to follow through on their end of the bargain, and they fouled things up, and so God's sort of up there in heaven scratching His head saying, now how am I going to fix this? Okay, here's what I'll do. So it almost sounds to us as though God has to come up with plan B. But actually the Scripture indicates to us there was no plan B. God knew, even before He created man, what man was going to do. So, fast forward now to the book of Revelation. We're going from the first book of the Bible to the very last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation, where we get a description of Jesus Christ. where Jesus, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, is described as the Lamb who was slain when? Before the creation of the earth. Jesus is described in Revelation as the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And incidentally, that is precisely how Peter describes Jesus as well in 1 Peter chapter 17. 1 Peter chapter 1, excuse me, verses 17 through 21. He describes Jesus as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. Now, when we think of Jesus being slain, we think of him being slain when? 
Uh, sometime around the year 33 A.D. in ancient Palestine, don't we? Outside the city walls. But actually, the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John here in the book of Revelation, describes Jesus as that Lamb, the Lamb of God, who was slain when? Before the foundation of the earth. So when does the story of our salvation begin? When does the rescue mission start? It starts even before there is a need for us to be rescued. Now just pause for a moment and let that sink in. God is going to create human beings knowing full well when He gives them free choice, free will. And incidentally, I would argue that Adam and Eve were the only ones who really had free will. Everybody else had free choice. But once Adam had fallen, we're, we're all bound, as Charles Wesley said, in sin and nature's night. Until God's eye diffused, diffused a quickening ray, and we rose, the dungeon flamed with light, and our chains fell off and our hearts were free, and we were able to rise, go forth, and follow Him. But up to that point, they, they had free choice, free will. But there was always the possibility that they would use that free will what? The wrong way. And they did. And God knew that. So even before you and I had sinned and needed a Savior, God had set in motion the means by which you and I would be redeemed. Now that's love. Because most of us would say, if that's what they're going to do, let's forget it altogether. But God is such a loving God, such a giving God, that He gives even though He knows there will be betrayal even though he knows that he will ultimately be hurt, even though that he knows that his rightful place will be challenged by his own creation. And yet he does it anyway, and before the foundation of the world sets in motion the means by which you and I would be rescued from ourselves. If you think about it, that is extraordinary. So the plan is formulated before the problem. The problem occurs, God sets it in motion in Genesis chapter 3. The plan, as it were, is executed. And how does it come to fruition? Well, if you turn now to Genesis chapter 12, you'll see what happens. Through the descendants of Adam and Eve, God calls a particular man. His name is Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now Nancy raised a question last week at the end of our study of the Sermon on the Mount about all Israel being saved. This is where it ties in, right here. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Well, how's that going to take place? Well, it's going to be because through Abraham's seed will come the seed of the woman, who will one day crush the serpent's head. So God is basically reiterating the promise here in Genesis chapter 12 that he made back there in Genesis chapter 3. But now he's making the promise to a descendant of Adam, to Abram. And through Abram, he's going to do what? call a particular people, the nation of Israel. Now, sometimes you and I forget things. Sometimes such a period of time passes that we forget. Uh, it was amazing when we were unpacking the house at 92 Church Street. 
and going through the boxes and things that we forgot we'd even had. You know, that happens every year when we unpack the Christmas ornaments. We've been putting them on the tree for years, but somehow, since it's a whole year that's passed, I forgot we even had that. So you'll notice that throughout history, what God does is He reiterates the promise that He made back there in Genesis. And He reiterates the promise that He made to Abram, that a Savior would come, and that through that line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And He reiterates the promise once again. And He reiterates that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So you've got Adam going down to Abram, Abram going the whole way down to King David. To King David. If you can, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 and following. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What? Forever. You ever heard those words before? You've heard a version of them from another passage in the Old Testament. And the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. Where have you heard those words before? The Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. Absolutely. And so this is the promise that God is making. And I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be to Him a father, and He shall be to me a son. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So the promise is reiterated, you see. The promise that a Savior is going to come, that God is going to establish the Davidic dynasty forever. So we see God being faithful to His promise. Incidentally, when God makes this covenant with Abraham and He makes this covenant with David... It's a covenant that is irrevocable. You know, we tend to think that when you make a covenant with somebody, you're only bound to your end of the bargain so long as they keep up their end of the bargain. Isn't that what we think? Well, if he was unfaithful to me, therefore I'm no longer bound by the agreement. That may be true of us. It is not true of God. Even if we prove unfaithful, God proves faithful. Now we're going to see that David did prove from time to time unfaithful, didn't he? <laughs> but he was nevertheless a man after God's own heart. And the point is that even if he proved unfaithful, God would prove himself faithful. 
So, the promise is reiterated. Now, fast forward to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Here's where it gets interesting. He said this is the planned and it's already being executed rescue mission. But it's a rescue mission that comes to fulfillment when you get to Galatians chapter 4. How many of you, by the way, some years ago saw the movie Captain Phillips? Anybody see that movie starring Tom Hanks? It's about the, the fellow that was the captain of the uh, Maersk uh, liner, and uh, they were hijacked by Somali terrorists, pirates. And do you remember how the story ends? This is not a spoiler because it's a true story, so you can find out for yourself. But you know how it ends. They bring in the Navy SEALs to rescue him because he's taken prisoner, he's taken captive, and they take him off in one of the rescue pods, and they bring in the U.S. Navy SEALs. And let me tell you, it is an amazing story. You are on the edge of your seat. Even if you know how it ends, you are on the edge of your seat. Because it is extremely well-planned, well-executed, and successful rescue mission. And when I think of the coming of Jesus Christ, that's how I imagine it. We are in peril. We are in danger. We are captive. Captive to what? To sin and to the devil. And God decides that he's going to rescue us. And he plans out the rescue mission. And he executes the rescue mission. And the question is, will it be successful? Well, you get to Galatians chapter 4. And you read these words. But when the fullness of time had come. Some translations put it this way. But when the time was just right. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. I love that expression, at just the right time. And as somebody who loves history, you can see how it was just the right time. It was the perfect time in the history of the world for the Savior to come. The first century was almost a veritable, I've said this before, petri dish for the growth of Christianity and for its bread. First of all, it was a period of relative peace in the life of the world. It was the famed Pax Romana. Never before in the history of the world, really, since Eden, had there been such unprecedented peace on the face of the earth. That's one of the things that the Romans brought. Now, they brought it with brutality. We don't dispute that. But it was relative peace and prosperity throughout the bulk of the Roman Empire. You could travel almost anywhere without fear of being attacked or beaten. It was the famed Pax Romana. It was a time in the life of the world, for the first time, really, when almost everybody within the Roman Empire spoke a common language. Now, the official language of the empire was what? Latin, of course. But the lingua franca of the day, the language of commerce, was Greek. So as long as you could speak Greek, you could pretty much proclaim a message to anybody in the known world at that time. Think about that. That made it possible for Christianity to be proclaimed to any number of people. That had never happened before in the history of the world. And furthermore, for the first time in history, it was possible to travel from one end of the empire to the other with relative ease. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Well, in the first century, that was quite literally true. In fact, if you go to parts of Europe today, you can still travel on the Roman roads. And the reason for that was they had this far-flung empire and the Romans had to maintain peace and the way that they did that was by means of the Roman legionnaires. And so the Roman legions would march out from Rome to all of these far-flung points along their empire. Now how did they get there? 
They were great road builders. The Romans were great road builders. And, and they didn't believe, like the Greeks, that if you ran into an obstacle, you went around it. You tunneled right through it. And that's why in Europe today, people still travel on the Roman roads. They were so effective, so well planned, so well laid out, that we still use them today. So in the first century, for the first time, it was possible to go anywhere with relative ease, in relative peace, and proclaim a message in which everyone would be able to hear it. That has never happened before in the history of the world. At just the right time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law at just the right time. There's an old expression that says, timing is everything from the theater. Timing's everything. And God's timing is impeccable. And so when you get to Matthew chapter 1, and again we said that Matthew also tells the story of the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 begins with these words. Now, this is the coming of Jesus. But how does Matthew describe Jesus? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this is Matthew's version of saying this is the promise made to Abraham, reiterated to David, and now fulfilled in the person of who? Of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a remarkable story? You ain't heard nothing yet. Because there was a point where it would appear as though God's plan could never be fulfilled. There was a point where it appeared as though God's great promise to bring salvation through Abraham, and particularly through David, was not going to be fulfilled. Here's what happened, and you're going to have to hang in here with me. This gets a little technical, and I'll do my best to explain it, but if you can hang in there with me, it will give you a whole new perspective on what God is up to. When King David died... Tradition had it that the eldest son always inherited the throne. And so when David died, it was expected that his elder son, Nathan, would inherit the throne. But David did something unusual. He decided to bypass Nathan and pass the throne to his younger son, Solomon. And so Solomon's descendants actually sat on the throne, though Nathan's descendants actually had a legal claim to the throne. And at that point, the two lines diverged and continued on down. And this is why, incidentally, Matthew and Luke have two genealogies. All right? Luke is going to trace the story of David down through one line, and Matthew is going to trace it down through another line. Matthew is going to trace it down through the line of Solomon. Luke is going to trace Jesus' descendancy down through the line of Nathan. So that's how it goes. And so the descendants of Solomon sit on the throne, but there's always the potential out there for the other side of the family to lay claim to the throne. 
but nobody ever did. And so the lines continue on down until you get to a king named Jehoiakim, or Jeconias, who is a terribly evil and wicked king of the line of Solomon, sitting on David's throne. But he is so awful that God pronounces a curse on the line of Jehoiakim. Turn, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. And this is what we read. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. God rejects him. He shall no longer sit on the throne of David, nor shall any of his descendants sit on the throne of David anymore. And the people are carried off into captivity, into Babylon. Well, the line continues on down until we get to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the dilemma. In order for the Messiah to be recognized by all of the people, he has to be the undisputed claimant to the throne of David. Undisputed. Now, if he is of the line that actually reigned, the problem is what? There's a curse on that line. So somebody's going to argue he's not legitimate. He can't claim the throne. He can't be the true Savior of the world. He can't be the son of David because that line is cursed. So if the Savior comes through the line of Solomon, he'll be considered illegitimate by part of the people. Now, if the Savior comes through the line of Nathan, he's of royal blood, right? But he never actually sat on the throne. They were royal, but they never actually had claim to the throne. And so half of the population is going to say, well, they're illegitimate. Now, what you'll notice is that Mary and Joseph are descended from King David. Joseph is descended through the cursed line. Mary is descended through the line that was not cursed but never reigned. The Savior, in order to be considered legitimate, has to be accepted by all the people. So how does God resolve that dilemma? A virgin birth. All of the sudden... Mary conceives a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're told that Jesus was of the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother. So the blood of who is coursing through his veins? David's blood. But Mary's line never actually what? Sat on the throne. But Joseph's line did. But Joseph's line's cursed, you say. Yes. But what does Joseph do? Jesus is not Joseph's child. So when Joseph adopts Jesus, and we said that in the ancient world, when you were adopted as a child, you could not what? You could not be disinherited. You could disinherit a natural child, but you could not disinherit an, uh, an adopted child. So when Joseph adopts Jesus... He passes all the rights, privileges, and honors that go along with being a part of that royal line that reigned. But he does not pass the curse. 
But because Jesus is also descended through the line of Nathan, through Mary, he has the royal blood coursing through his veins. And so God resolves the dilemma through the means of a miracle. Which simply means, folks, if Jesus Christ is not the Savior of the Jewish people, there never will be one. Now you just step back from that and you think to yourself, who but God? Now the reason I'm telling you all of that is for you to realize all of that, quite literally, the moving of heaven and earth, and the necessity of a virginal conception. And incidentally, that's really the proper term, not virgin birth, but virginal conception. Virgin birth is actually a Roman Catholic doctrine. Virginal conception is what we're really talking about. But we'll get to that at another point. But God does all of that, including going to the extreme of having a, virginal, a virgin, about 13 years of age, conceive a child. In order to do what? In order to do one thing and one thing only rescue you rescue me from the power of sin and death and that's what Christmas is all about it's about a well-planned well-executed God moving heaven and earth to successfully save you and me you, whoever you are, you are that precious in God's sight. And that's why as Christians, we need to realize God will always make a way where there is no way. And while the world will talk about Santa Claus and reindeers and all of that, we must never forget nor give up the real reason for the season. So we approach that great day. Oh, come, let us adore him. So, just a little thought as you head into Christmas this year. So, any questions about any of that? All Israel will be saved because in and through this particular Savior, God is going to create a new Israel, is what the Apostle Paul says. And that new Israel will not be the children of Abraham by blood. If you've got your Bible, open it up uh, to John's Gospel for just a moment, and I'll show you how Israel will be saved. John chapter 1. And this, of course, is the famous story of the Word becoming flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, verse 9, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, what? Not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's very significant because most Jews believed that they were the children of Abraham simply by nature of their birth, by virtue of their birth. And what John is saying is you don't become a child of God simply by virtue of your pedigree. It is by grace and it is by adoption. So what God does, and this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11, is he is going to create a new Israel that are the true descendants of Abraham, but not by blood, but by faith in the promise. What was the promise? The promise made to Abraham that one day he would send an heir through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And so the new Israel is the church. And the church is comprised of what? All people. Jews and Gentiles alike. The early Christians were what? They were all Jews. Now I think what you see happening in Romans chapter 11, and this is a whole study in and of itself, what you see happening there and what I see is a prophecy that in the end times, God is going to work in such a way that even his ancient people are going to turn in large numbers to receive the Savior. And when that happens, all of Israel, the traditional Israel as well as the new Israel, will be saved. And they'll all be saved through the one Savior, Jesus Christ. No, that's the question. What about those who've gone before? I think you, you, what happens when we die? Is there another opportunity to be saved? I think everything in the scripture indicates that that is not the case. We are told that his appointed man wants to die and then there's judgment. So I don't think that's what we're talking about. But we have to remember that there were a lot of Hebrews, and there's still many today that are turning to God in vast numbers. So that's a whole other subject. Yes, Lon. Well, for a number of reasons. Number one, the Christian gospel, if, it had, if, if, the Christ, if Jesus had been born at any other point in history, the chances of it spreading, Christianity spreading as rapidly as it did, would not have been possible. Simply because you had peace in the Roman Empire, everybody spoke a common language, so it was possible for Paul, for example, to go out, and as long as he could speak Greek, wherever he went, he could proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't have to learn the local dialect or anything like that. Which is one of the reasons why the New Testament is written in Greek. Jesus spoke a form of Hebrew, Aramaic. But the New Testament is written in Greek. Why? Because that's what most people would be able to read. Whereas Americans tend to be, just have knowledge of one language, people in the ancient world had knowledge of many languages. Okay? It's powerful stuff, isn't it? Make you scratch your head. But what it does is it makes you fall on your knees and give thanks to God. Well, let's close with a word of prayer so you can get off and get a seat. <laughs> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you loved us so much that you were willing to move heaven and earth and to even call a virgin and to fill her with your Holy Spirit that she would conceive a child a long promise, long anticipated Savior. We pray, Lord, that he who appeared in this world and found no room in the inn might, as we approach December the 25th, find in us a mansion prepared for himself, room in our hearts, that he might take his rightful place and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.